Well, this is the age of Facebook, of Instagram, of TikTok, Snapchat, um, and I'm sure there's more. This is the age of social media. And of course, I myself make use of social media, and there are many ways it can be so helpful, it can be so useful. That said, I think most of us use social media with something of a, a reservation because I think we all know that much that we see on social media is photoshopped, scripted, and curated. Wrinkles on your face? No problem. Gone. Instant slimming through the magic of photo editing. Social media is where people boast about the perfect life that they don't have and where we feel like failures because our lives simply don't measure up. But you know, don't you, that real life is not nearly as shiny. Real life is far messier and far more chaotic. We, we have been hurt. We've had our dreams shattered. We feel hopeless. And sometimes, you know, doesn't it feel like to you, sometimes you're just running on fumes. And sometimes you don't even have the energy to pretend that everything is fine. That's what real life is like sometimes, isn't it? And the book of Ruth, this story of Ruth, shows us a gracious God who loves us when our lives are far from perfect. And it shows us a gracious God who loves us when the only thoughts that we have about God are bitterness and disappointment. That's why we come to the book of Ruth to see the God who loves us when our lives are far from perfect, to see the God who loves us when the only things that we can think about him are bitterness and disappointment. And that is exactly what we see. And I like to organize this morning's reflections under three headings following the movement that we see in this chapter. First is the movement from Bethlehem to Moab from Bethlehem to Moab. Now, did you notice how the author uh, very skillfully, very concisely frames the whole story with very few words? So it starts with verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, you, of course, recognize that the book of Ruth follows immediately after the book of Judges. And the author tells us that these things are happening in the days when the judges ruled. When God first brought Israel out of Egypt and settled them in Canaan, he raised up uh, individuals to lead his people, to protect his people. But as time goes on, we see a noticeable decline in the quality both of the leadership of Israel and in the people of Israel. So the book of Judges documents uh, what we may properly call Israel's downward spiral. 
things go from bad to worse. So as spiritual apostasy grows in Israel, sin's chaos and misery become more vicious and more violent. And so the book of Judges, especially the latter part of the book of Judges, we keep reading this phrase, and this is exactly the phrase that ends the whole entire book of Judges, Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is what we need to know about the days when the judges rule. And I think immediately the fact that Ruth is taking place in those days and it follows the book of Judges and precedes the book of 1 Samuel where God raises a king. And you notice how the book of Ruth itself ends with the birth of David. That helps us to realize that the book of Ruth is far more than simply be like Ruth or be like Boaz. I've actually heard a sermon, uh, a preacher, it was a women's conference telling women, you need to wait for your Boaz. And that's the lesson that he got out of this book. And I, I thought to myself, no, you've missed the point. Because, you know, it, it, it becomes very apparent quickly that Ruth was a young woman. Boaz was a much older man. So if the lesson is you need to wait for your Boaz, I mean, what are you telling women? That you need to wait for an older rich guy to come along? That's your happiness? That's certainly not the message I want to convey to women and certainly not the message that I want my daughter to hear. The book of Ruth, it's far more than about simply be like Ruth or even wait for your Boaz. That's not the point. You realize... It's taking place in the, in the days when the judges ruled, when people were doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes because there was no king. And Ruth ends with the birth of David and leads into 1 Samuel where God establishes the kingdom. So there's much more that is going on here. But that said, that's when it is happening. In the days when the judges ruled where... Um, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Secondly, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah. Let's stop right there. You remember that God brought Israel out of Egypt, and he settled Israel in Canaan, in the land that was flowing with milk and honey. It was a land of plenty. But... Israel's right to the land, Israel's stay in the land was conditional. Israel's covenant loyalty to God would ensure a continued blessing in the land. If I were to put it somewhat simplistically in today's terms, the Lord is the landlord. God is the landlord of Israel, and the people of Israel are his tenants. And when they moved in, they signed a contract. And the contract stated certain terms. They had to remain faithful and loyal to their God. And upon that condition, they would stay in in that land and be blessed. But if they did not keep to the terms of the covenant, to the terms of the contract, then their rights to stay in the land would be revoked 
And as a matter of fact, that's what exile is. That happens much later. In other words, Israel's uh, rights to the land and, and their privileges in the land were conditional upon their covenant loyalty. But Israel broke her covenant promises to God. And so the land that was flowing with milk and honey, the land of plenty became a land of famine. And what's more, we read that a man of Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, Bethlehem in Hebrew language is two compound words. It's made up of words house and bread. So Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. And in the days when people did whatever seemed right in their their eyes, the land of plenty became a land of famine, and the house of bread did not have any bread. And so Elimelech, now the name Elimelech means, my God is king. That's what that name means. And Elimelech did what seemed good in his eyes. He took his wife, Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilian, and went to sojourn in the country of Moab. You see, it's one thing to say that God is your king, but it's, it's another thing altogether to live according to that word. And so Elimelech took his family and went to Moab, which is uh, due east of Bethlehem across the Dead Sea, about 70 to 100 miles away. And it seems clear that Elimelech figured he would sojourn. That's what we read. He would pass through. He would stay only a little while. But the days turned to months that turned to years. And so by the time we come to verse 2, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. And Moab became Elimelech's final resting place when he died there. And thirdly, we see Naomi's world came crashing down around her. Uh, In those days, women had no legal protection or social standing without her husband. And so a widow often became destitute and homeless. And Naomi has lost her husband. And her future now rests with her two sons, Marlon and Kilian. And they married Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. And Naomi hoped for a happy future with grandchildren. But what Naomi feared ever since her sons were born came true. You know, it's fascinating that Elimelech and Naomi named their sons Malon and Kilion. Malon comes from a word that means sickly person. Uh, Kilion means frailty. You know, it's, uh, the names in the Bible, they usually describe the aspirations of their parents or they are a succinct summary of the person's core being. You know, why would you name your son sickly person and frailty unless that's what they were from the moment they were born? And so Naomi raised them, always fearful for them, but hoping, 
hoping that things would turn out well. But in that land of Moab, after her husband died, the very thing that she feared ever since her sons were born came true. So Naomi, this is a woman whose dreams are shattered, her hopes are lost. That's the first thing that we see from Bethlehem to Moab. And the second movement then is from Moab to Bethlehem. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, how Elimelech and Naomi left Canaan, left the promised land, the very place that God had promised to bless them. And instead of seeking to be right with God, instead of seeking the Lord with faith and repentance, they left the very place that God had promised to bless. And I'm sure they thought that they had no choice. And they were convinced that not even God can help them there. But notice in verse 6, Naomi heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. You see, what Elimelech and Naomi had dismissed as impossible. You know, they left Canaan, they left Bethlehem because they were convinced there's nothing that even God can do about this. We have no choice. But the thing that they had thought was impossible, God, in fact, did. You know, it makes you wonder, doesn't it, just how much pain and trouble could have been avoided if they had only trusted God and stayed. But it is only now, after Naomi has lost everything, only then her heart turns back to God. And so Naomi's journey back to Bethlehem from Moab also sets in motion the slow return of her heart to God. But Naomi's spiritual return to God proves much harder than the 70 to 100 mile journey back to Bethlehem. You see, Naomi has been hurt. And her pain and her bitterness are evident. And I think we can see clearly that when her husband Elimelech died, her life became very hard. That's why she wants Orpah and, and Ruth to remarry. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. This is a woman who is f- intimately familiar with the hardships of the life of a widow. And she tells her daughters-in-law, remarry. I hope you find something that I never found. I hope you find rest. I hope you find security. I don't want you to end up like me. I want something better for you. That's what she's saying. Now, at first, the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, they refuse to leave. But Naomi persuades them. And what she is talking about here may sound a little bit unfamiliar. She says, do I have any sons that, that, that can marry you? Uh, What she is referring to is the provision that God made in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's called the leveret marriage. 
And it's a law where if a man dies leaving a childless wife, then the deceased man's brother was responsible to impregnate the widow. And the child that was born from that arrangement would be counted as the son of the deceased man. And, if that, and that was a way of ensuring that dead man's properties are protected. And it was a way of ensuring that security and protection are provided to the widow. But Naomi at this point is already old. What is she going to do now? Even if she could find a husband that day and become pregnant that day, are Orpah and Ruth going to wait around until the boys grew up and, and marry them? And so what Naomi is thinking is that the provisions that God has made in, in his words sound so unrealistic, so irrelevant to our situation. And so Naomi says in verse 13, Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And Orpah, uh, and we don't want to blame her. It's clear that she loved Naomi. It's clear that she was a good wife to Malone. But when Orpah hears what Naomi says, she does what's sensible. She leaves. But Ruth, Ruth clung to her. But notice this too. Naomi is so bitter in her heart, so bitter with God, that she tells Ruth not to put her trust in the Lord. Look at verse 15. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. You know what Naomi is thinking? You know what Naomi is saying? Naomi thinks, and she is convinced that the Lord has failed her. And what can that God do for Ruth? Because if Ruth returns with Naomi to Bethlehem, then it is as a poor foreigner without dowry, furthermore with a reputation as a barren woman. Ruth has no future in Bethlehem. And Naomi is convinced that not even the Lord can do anything to help Ruth. And so Naomi tells her, go back to your people, go worship your own gods, because my God He's failed me. He can't do anything for you. Go back. But surprisingly, Ruth answers in verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. You know, because this book is called Ruth, I think we sometimes forget this is actually a story about Naomi. Chapter 1 begins with Naomi, and chapter 4 ends with Naomi. This book of Ruth is really, it is about Ruth, yes, but it is at the same time about Naomi's return to God. 
And what Naomi doesn't see is that in her bitterness, in her grief, she cannot see that God is sending her grace and help in the form of a person who loves her so dearly that that gives up everything in order to share in her sufferings, in order to care for her. Naomi is saved through the sacrificial love of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. So that's the movement from Moab to Bethlehem. And thirdly and finally, it is a bitter return, a bitter return. Naomi's return became the talk of the town. All the women said, is this, is this Naomi? And it seemed they had a hard time believing that this was their old friend, their old relative. And my guess is there were deep lines on her face. Her eyes were sunken and there was deadness in her eyes. And her pain and her loss were palpable. Is this Naomi? I can't believe it. What's happened to you? And in verse 20, she says, Do not call me Naomi. Some of you have Bibles with a footnote there. The word name Naomi means pleasant. Do not call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Again, the name Mara means bitter. Do not call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And Naomi can hardly hide her disappointment with God. Where were you, God? Why did you not answer? I went away full and I came back empty. I lost everything. I lost my sons. And you, you sitting on your throne in heaven, do you even care? Do you know what it's like to watch your son die? She can't hide her disappointment with God. She can't hide her bitterness. She can't hide her pain. But God, God was answering her pain with grace long before she could even recognize it. It's clear, I think, that Naomi wasn't the best example to her daughters-in-law. She wasn't the best of examples to her sons. She, along with her husband Elimelech, did what was right in their eyes. Justify their leaving of the promised land, justified not trusting the Lord. And so full of grief and bitterness. I mean, can you imagine? Those of you who are believers, all of us that are believers, could you imagine telling somebody, go worship your gods because my God, he's let me down. He can't do anything for you. There's no point for you. It's useless to follow my God. I mean, can you imagine you ever saying that to anyone? None of us can imagine ever saying something like that, could we? Naomi wasn't the best of of examples, but without Naomi, 
Ruth could not have come to faith. Without Naomi's suffering, Ruth could never have been counted as part of God's covenant people. And so what that tells us is this. Naomi suffered for Ruth's salvation. And out of her suffering will come David and ultimately Jesus. The suffering and the loss of one leads to life and blessing for many. That's what God was doing long before Naomi had any inkling of what God was doing. When her heart was full of bitterness and disappointment, God was actually working out His gracious, wonderful purpose. Now, perhaps you are like Naomi, too. The years have been hard, and you are disappointed with God. You, too, also find yourself saying and thinking, God, God, where have you been? Why didn't you answer? And try as you might, the only things that you can think about God are disappointment and bitterness. Or perhaps you are like Ruth, because following the Lord has meant loss and sacrifice. Loved ones receive Jesus' comfort. In Psalm 22, verse 1, this is what we read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And you know, don't you, that this was Jesus' cry on the cross. You see, Jesus did not watch our loss and pain from the safe distance on his throne. He came down and he went into the grave. Jesus knows and he cares deeply. And to be in the Lord whose suffering brought blessing for many means that God is working His grace in us long before we can recognize it. You know, there are some ways we can guess what God might be doing through our suffering. Scripture teaches us that suffering refines our character. Suffering makes us more compassionate to those that are suffering. And those are some of the ways that we can understand, perhaps. But the wonder of it is that God is doing far more and greater things that we cannot even begin to imagine. And He's accomplishing something good that we can't even begin to guess about. Why? Because we are in the Son, Jesus Christ, whose suffering brought blessing, whose pains brought grace. That's what it means to be in Jesus. And... And God loved Naomi. 
when there was only bitterness and disappointment in her heart, God loved Naomi because God is also a father, and He knows the pain of losing a son. And God loved Naomi when her life was far from perfect. And God loved Naomi when her heart was far from pure. When there was only anger, only bitterness, and only disappointment, God loved Naomi. And because of that, we will soon see that God's love for her was not in vain. Did you notice that this chapter began with the famine? It ends with the harvest. Sorrow will end. Joy will come. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you love us deeply, not when we love you, or not only when we love you, not only when our faith is strong, but you love us when our lives are chaotic, when our hearts are full of anger, bitterness, and disappointment. You take no offense, but you love us deeply, faithfully. And so I pray, O oh Lord, that that grace, that love, would be our anchor and would be our refuge and our strength. Lord, may your suffering people find hope and comfort today. And may they remember that your grace is so great, that your love is so great, that you love us through all seasons of life and you love us through all of our trials, failures, our mistakes, and our sins. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.